What's going on, gang? We're back. Welcome to another episode with the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. Uh, we're so glad to have you guys with us. For the first timers, I'm Dr. Jay Fitz, and I have uh, my co-host with me here. Dr. Cole, the right. voice you guys will love to hear. There we go. And at least that's what he he thinks in his own head. But uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're the one-stop shop to uh, trying to get you right for your orthopedic studies, whether it's, uh, you know, med student level, resident level, or attending. We're even trying to get something out there for you. So uh, we have another great uh, show in store for you guys. Uh, but before we get go- too far, Cody, what was like the just because we, we just always kind of talking about the, you know, how things were when we first started. What was like one of the first, you know, I guess, approaches that you kind of did by yourself and you felt pretty comfortable with? What Like what was the first one where they kind of just let you fly? Oh, man, <laughs> I remember this one. It was a. um. Uh, it was it was actually a, a volar Henry approach uh, for for a radius, but it was like a segmental radial shaft fracture. And I, I'm not I'm not really counting like the you know the subcutaneous ulna approaches. Those are really you know kind of straightforward. But I remember this one, I, like I was just in there, <laughs> and the yeah. uh, attending wasn't. There. I had one of my attendings who was close by, but I was just kind of just just working at it. And um, you know you think you know, but you know there's a lot more technical things. Um, that you that you don't really realize just watching things and you're like okay well which way am I going to retract the the, um, the FCR you know and, and mm-hmm. okay what am I going to do with these bleeders you know um, but it was good and it turned up out okay and I, I the dissection was good and it was a it was it was good it was a great learning experience and um, um you know what about you so did you wipe out the uh, superficial radial nerve or, or what I feel like you probably messed some stuff up in there Oh, oh um, no, man, no, no we, don't, <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> you don't know uh, your stuff, you know. You know, you, you don't want to, you know, harm patients. You know, you want to do the best uh, thing you can. So if you're uncomfortable, you better stop and get somebody. Yeah, true story. Uh, I don't know, man. For, I mean, as far as like just first let you fly, I feel like uh, a lot of the kind of simple bimalleolar or ankle fractures, uh, you tend to get some uh, autonomy with those relatively early. Um, you know, this could be, I mean, this is pretty early. I mean, this could even be maybe second year. Uh, it's just like, all right, here's the knife. Uh, how are you going to fix it? You know, and I think right. they're, they actually are like a lot of times they are fairly simple fractures and I think they are, it's probably appropriate for the junior resident to, uh, be doing it. And I'm not saying I'm like mastered it or anything like that because I'm still still perfecting everything. But uh, I as just when I look back, that was probably the first thing I, that I was like, oh man, I think he's walking away. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. I think it's just me in here. But it's it's relatively simple stuff, right? You go into the fibula, that's like pretty much straight to bone, almost just looking out for the uh, uh, superficial peroneal, and then you got to determine what you're gonna do with the medial male, and sometimes you can do just some screws or. Uh, just a just a quick a- approach to the medial malleolus, which is not nothing too groundbreaking there. I don't think you have you're gonna mess up too much there. So yeah, little things well, like that, man. Yeah, man, I'm proud of you. I'm glad you're thinking through it, and um, you know, hands stop shaking, man. I'm, I'm proud of you. Yeah, man. Ain't nothing like those beads of sweat that used to roll <laughs> down up under that gown, and no one knew about it. You up here, your, your glasses fogging up. You're like, oh my yeah. god, this is. Oh, man, it's hot in here. Is it? It's just me. <laughs> yeah, it's the air on. Yeah, what's the air on? They'd be like uh, 67. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Yeah. All right then. <laughs> I don't know. 
man. All right, man. Tell them about the show we got in store today, man. Yeah, we got a great show today. We have um, we have Dr. Matthew Harb, who's going to come and talk to us about an intro to total knee arthroplasty. And we talk about a lot of, a lot of things, really. We talk about um, flexion, extension gaps. We talk about your cuts, why to make them, the thought process behind them, mechanical versus kinematic knee alignment. If you don't even know what that is, that's perfect. You're going to learn it here. And if you do know what it is, then perfect. We're going to kind of dive a little bit uh, deeper into it. Dr. Matthew Harb, some of you may be listening, also on Instagram, known as The Bone Surgeon. Um, a little bit about him. He did his orthopedic residency in New York City at State University of New York, and he did adult reconstruction fellowship at the University of Virginia. So we guys, we hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Harb on Total Neurothoplasties. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Okay, welcome to another exciting episode of the Nailed It Orthopedic Podcast. We have another amazing guest here on the show today. We're going to talk about kind of the intro to knee arthroplasty. We recently did uh, hip. Uh, and now we're going to do the knee. We, we got to be uh, complete here. So here we go. And I would like to introduce Dr. Harb. How you doing, sir? Very good. Very good. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to kind of delve into this topic and, you know, clear up some questions that anyone may have or kind of make just the topic in general a little little more easy to understand. I, I know when I was an intern in orthopedics you know i was like why are we making this cut why are we making that cut why are we doing the balancing so it can be a little bit confusing to understand but i think hopefully by the end of this um we'll have a good good easy definition of why we do these things absolutely and you know cody is pretty much learning just from uh like this his first day so i'm, I'm glad that you're here to explain it so there we uh, go yeah but uh sir so Usually when we get going, we always like to ask some questions about our guests. So um, my first question for you, and this one, I'm, I'm actually being kind of kind of selfish here because this is an interest of mine. But uh, in your experience, what, what would you recommend uh, or I guess what are some of the qualities that you think a fellowship will be looking for in a resident who's interested in going into reconstruction, adult reconstruction? Yeah, so, you know, you got to kind of figure out how you fit into the program. So I think what people are looking for are that you're going to be a good fit to the program, but also that you're not someone who needs to be taught how to do a knee arthroplasty. So a lot of these, um, you know, attendings in the fellowship, they have busy practices. They're booking maybe eight cases with a flip room. Like, so on the same side, you're there to learn, but you also need to be able to make it go efficient for them. So, Someone who kind of is self-directed with learning, good hands in the operating room, very motivated, um, and basically there to make their lives easier and kind of get that operative experience uh, at the same time. I think the also the other benefit on the flip side to that is the fellows that, you know, coming in with a good understanding and, uh, and good hands in the OR, you'll be able to get a, a lot more experience early on. So. Yeah, you would definitely expect, uh, it's, you know, after five years, you hope you have some of the, the basics down and just can get the, the, the advanced training that you need to, to be a successful knee uh, or joint surgeon by the time you get to fellowship. So, yeah, awesome. Uh, things I'm going to definitely keep in mind. Um, it can be it, it can-
can be a little difficult sometimes because, you know, every residency program is a little bit different and not everyone gets a good joint experience. Um, You know, so there's a lot of other, you know, being good at trauma, being good at other services can all kind of fill into that space to make up for it. But, you know, you have to be motivated and you have to be able to, um, you know, make, be able to make things go efficiently for whoever you are working for in a joint fellowship. Right. I think those are um, all great points. And I, even the, I think that that same mindset can be, can be held. If you're a med student working with a, with an intern, you make the intern's life easier. If you're an intern working with the chief, you make the chief's life easier, you know, and you kind of just continue that, that path. Um, next being said, next question I have for you is, do you have any lessons that you learned during residency or something that stuck out to you that, you know, that, that may be from experience or something that you learned about yourself kind of going, going throughout your uh, years in residency? I mean, so we, in our residency call room, we had a big, uh, a big sign on the wall that said the beatings will continue until morale improves. So I think that, um, you know, residency is hard, but, you know, some attendings may be hard on you, but it's all kind of trial by fire. And I think those experiences, you know, taking that, you know, 20th consult, uh, 2 a.m., I think all those experiences kind of, kind of, or if there's an attending surgeon who's really hard on you, uh, you know, they're all doing it for a good reason. And so I think all those experiences uh, combined, um, you know, really build you into the person and into the surgeon that you're going to be. Um, so, you know, however silly something may sound, um, however you, if someone asks you to do something and you may think it's, you know, the worst thing in the world, it'll, it will help you grow into the person and the surgeon that you're going to be down the line. So I think all those experiences are important. Yeah, I, I totally definitely 100% agree with that. And I think that's a great mindset to have even, you know, if you're on call, you know, seeing consoles at two or three in the, in the morning, you know, having the the mindset that, you know, there's always something that you can learn from this patient, or there's always, uh, you know, a skill that you can obtain, you know, by, by dealing with whatever it may be. So always look for the good in things. And uh, the third question I have, uh, actually, I think Jay, you may have a question for him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So just to get outside of medicine and things, what are some of your interests that you or, or hobbies that you like to do when you're not busy with work? Yeah, so, you know, it's kind of funny how, how things overtake you and with the pandemic. So uh, towards the end of fellowship with COVID and everything going on, I got into golf. Um, it got into a pretty bad habit where uh, I'd play around and then I'd buy a new driver. My, my wife didn't really enjoy that too much when I wanted a new club every time I came home. So I got into that a little bit, but um you know, the other kind of thing that we like to do on the weekends is, uh, is hiking. I have a two and a half year old daughter and actually another one who's, uh, he's doing two days. So, um, you know, we, we have a little hiking carrier for, uh, for our daughter. So we throw her in a, throw her on my back and we go for uh, some hikes. So those are kind of the main things. I think that's cool. Uh, no, go, yeah, go ahead, Jay. It sounds like you want to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, like, uh, I, I want to learn how to golf. It's one of those things that's on my list, you know, my to-do list of, you know, learning learning to get get that down. I just don't really have the, the chance nowadays, but. Oh, I uh, thought yeah. you were about to say you didn't have the coordination. I was going to say, I know that. <laughs> maybe. Hey, maybe. I don't know, man. I don't know. But maybe one day we'll find out. You can get out to a top golf there, 
easy and it's only like a couple hours, an hour or two. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's a, that'll be a start for me. See if I can at least hit the ball. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, let's go ahead and transition so into the case or into the talk for the day. So we'll start off kind of with a yeah. general case, and then we'll talk a little bit about, a little bit more about total knee arthroplasties. Um, so just say you have you know a patient that Dr. Harp, say you have a patient that comes to your office, seventy year old male, who comes in complaining of long standing knee pain. He's seen. Uh, he's seen a physician before in the past. He's gotten multiple steroid injections that don't even last more than a couple of days now. He's tried physical therapy without any uh, improvement, and he's even tried maybe some visco supplementation injections, and he just has continued pain. Uh, what are some of the things that you may ask this patient about in the office that you'll um, touch on for, I guess, for uh, history and uh, physical exam? You know, as far as history, it's uh, good to get an idea of uh, how far they're walking, if they need any type of uh, assistance, a cane or a walker. You know, the worst case is if that patient comes in in a wheelchair, then, you know, it's not a, not a good situation. But, um, you know, the average kind of 70-year-old, maybe weekend warrior has uh, some knee arthritis, usually on the, the medial compartment. Can, you know, by the time the steroid injections stop working, that's time uh, to really kind of consider a knee replacement surgery. But the biggest thing I kind of tell them is that, you know, knee replacement's an elective surgery. It's a unified decision between both of us when um, it's best for you. But waiting is not going to make this surgery any more difficult um, for me. So it's really when your quality of life is affected, when you have trouble putting on clothes, when you have trouble with your activities of daily living, when your quality of life is severely diminished. And you know, when you're at that point, I think it's time to really, really consider a knee replacement surgery. Absolutely. And you know, this talk, you know, we could go into a whole lot of detail between history and physical and things like that, but uh, I don't think that's kind of not the scope we're going for for this particular talk. Um, but let's say we, we are going down the road of uh, total knee arthroplasty for a patient and we're getting yes. imaging. So what, what types of imaging are you are you usually getting for your patients? Um, so I like a, a AP for uh, so a bilateral standing AP, a lateral view and then a sunrise view. You know, a, a couple other things that are a little bit important in history. So, you know, the big thing now is there's a huge shift to kind of outpatient joint replacement so um you know doing these in surgery centers or sending them home the same day i i have some experience um in that the case i um did last week was total knee and uh, that got we sent them, sent them home in two hours after surgery so mm -hmm. you know history becomes important for that i don't like to operate on patients who are you know we try to get them down to a bmi of 40 um, kind of modify as many risk factors as we can. Um, things like A1C, I like it to be under eight. You like their albumin to be optimized. You want them either not to be a smoker. You want them to not be on chronic opioid medications. Um, you know, and the biggest thing is, as far as like doing a joint outpatient is uh, looking at their age as well. Um, so all those are kind of modifiable risk factors and things. It's important to take. Uh, take into account whether you're doing this in an inpatient or outpatient setting, but kind of hard cutoffs are the A1C less than eight. And then, you know, even if they're 40, 46, 45 BMI, and they show some, some motivation to kind of get that down to a 40, um, you know, I think that's, that's a good sign that the patient's going to do well 
after. So I think those are those are other things in history that uh, you look for and you want to kind of know beforehand. Yeah, I think all those um, things are important, just like you're just talking about, because I know, uh, you know, infections are, are more common in patients with larger BMIs, you may have some wound problems and patients that are diabetics or smokers. So I'm glad that we uh, took that second out to touch on these pertinent history um, things, you know, at least pertinent things to ask your patient and make sure they're optimized prior to surgery so you have the best outcome that you can have. Um, yeah. Anything else that you wanted to touch on on history and or physical exam? I know, you know, we always tend to make, you know, look at the patient, check out their alignment, see if they have any previous scars or or anything, but is there anything that you wanted to uh, touch on? Yeah, I mean, I think physical exam is incredibly important as well. You know, in the clinic, you want to see if these patients have a flexion contracture because the biggest thing is to figure out, one, what, what are going to be the risk to this patient and what do you have to do to give them the best outcome? And what modifications does that, do you have to do in your surgical technique? So if they have a flexion contracture, you know, you may be cutting a little bit more distal femur, but you need to know all these things kind of going in. If they have a, you know, 15 or 20 degree varus deformity, is that correctable to neutral? If it's correctable to neutral, great. We could probably get by um, with an implant without a, out a box cut. But it, if it's not correctable, you may be leaning more to a, a varus valgus constraint type implant. Um, so I think those are kind of the biggest things, you know, making sure they're not, they don't have a contracture, seeing how correctable their deformity is. Um, other scars on their knee are incredibly important. There was a recent article in Journal of Arthroplasty talking about patients, if they had a prior knee scope, they were at a higher risk for any, uh, for previous, um, for a higher risk for infection than just a native knee. Um, you know, if they've had a uni, uh, put in there before any type of other procedures, all these kind of elevate their risk. And, that's something you need to talk to these patients about. Yeah. I think they should all, they should be informed of, you know, if they're put into that higher risk category. Um, I think they need to know that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it's always good to go through those things for sure. Uh, anytime you have a, a patient and you're, you're thinking about doing such a serious surgery because it, it can have, uh, you know, very bad outcomes from, from, obvious things you know now because of the research we know smoking uncontrolled diabetes uh really super uh super obese bmi you know those types of things that you know we can sometimes modify to kind of help help these patients before doing an elective procedure and give them the best chance of having a good outcome for sure um you can, you can kind of even go as far as so for, for example I'll, I'll give a case example that um i had last year where patient had had a multi-leg injury to their knee. They had like um, two revision surgeries after that, and they had probably about four or five incisions over their knee. So you, the question is, what, in, what incision do I use? And um, they also had a flap on that knee. So I think for that type of patient, the literature always tells us like prevent a skin bridge, make them five to six um, centimeters apart, use the most lateral incision, but that, that doesn't always work out for patients. So for that patient, we got a plastics, uh, plastics consult to see what, what incision was best for that. Um, you know, there's other things, it's maybe a little uh, antiquated technique, but there's something called a sham surgery where you literally take them to the OR, make an incision, close it up, see if it heals. If it heals, you go back and use that incision um, to do your total knee replacement. So all these kind of, um, you can even go into more detail with these type of things, but uh, 
So I think physical exam is uh, incredibly important. It, absolutely. So with, with the, the imaging, and we, we actually did mention those earlier, which imaging that you like to, to get. So I guess on the specific images, say starting with the AP, what are you actually looking for on those images? Yeah, so the, uh, the AP uh, radiograph, I think you, def you definitely need to get a standing radiograph. I like to get uh, bilateral knees on one plate. Um, you'll definitely see it where uh, you may have an x-ray that's not weight-bearing, and then you go back and get a weight-bearing x-ray, and it's just bone on bone. On bone. The deformity is exa exaggerated even more, and so I think you definitely need that, that weight-bearing film. Um, you know, from the AP, you can kind of see how much wear there is, what their deformity is. If it's a bilateral wear pattern, you can think of some type of autoimmune. You know, if they've had any uh, implants in place, if, you know, if they've had a uh, tibial tubercle osteotomy with screws in place, those are things you have to think about. If they had an ACL yeah. uh, reconstruction, the hardware may be in your way, and you need to know that so you can have the appropriate hardware um, in the room for you. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Awesome. So yeah, that's always a good thing to keep in mind. I know Cody, he's a, a sports a sports guy. So yeah, that's, I haven't seen many cases like that, but yeah, I could, I could definitely see how that would change your whole operative planning. If there's, you know, all these previous hardware in there from uh, a ACL repair or something like that. Uh, so definitely good to keep in mind. Uh, so this is actually going pretty well because uh, we talked about some of the imaging, I guess, just specifically, anything in particular you're looking for on lateral radiographs? Um, yeah, so uh, actually, so one more thing, uh, when I'm in the room, there's a couple other things you can do with radiographs. So I like to use the Cobb angle tool. Um, you'll have these x-rays up in your room. I draw a line that's uh, straight down the anatomic axis of the tibia and perpendicular. So you can kind of see where your tibial cut lines up. That also lets you kind of know how much you're taking on the um, on the uh, medial and lateral side, um, and then same thing with the uh, the femoral um, alignment. I'll draw a line down the uh, the axis of the uh, femur and six degrees uh, off from that to get the mechanical axis. Um, so I use the radiographs in the operating room as well. But so on the lateral uh, radiograph specifically. Um, you're looking for osteophytes, especially like a posterior osteophyte. That can mean that the tibia is subluxing anteriorly. So let's say you're thinking maybe, oh, this may be a good candidate for uni, but you see a big posterior osteophyte with medial wear pattern. You know, you may think twice about putting a uni in that patient because that could be a sign that their ACL is deficient. Um, so you want to know that. You also want to look at what their native tibial slope is. I try to try to match that. Um, you know, it can be fair, fairly variable um, for that. And then, um, you know, the other important thing to look at, especially if they've had prior surgeries, you want to make sure that they don't have a patella baja going on. You know that if you see a patella baja in a lateral x-ray, your exposure is going to be a lot more difficult. So you may need to think about doing something like a quad snip um, or some type of uh, procedure to kind of further facilitate exposure of the knee and that it may just not not be a straightforward home run case i like that so we're saying things to i want to touch on the lateral and then i actually kind of want to go back to the ap and, and dive into that a little bit more so we're saying on our lateral film uh of course we want to be on the lookout for the where our patella is our patella height if we're doing patella baja you're thinking it may be a little bit um uh, you may think 
earlier that you may need to utilize some other techniques in order to evert the patella uh, after you do your, you know, peripatellar arthrotomy. Um, another thing to look for is on the tibial side is to look for any posterior wear, which may indicate that you have an ACL deficient knee due to, due to possible chronic subluxation of that tibia. Um, and then you also want to look at your slope and, you know, you want to try to match the either native alignment or you want to try to figure out what cut you'll have to do in order to make your slope, I guess, may depend on the implant that you're using, but the, the ideal slope for that implant. Is that, is that all correct? Yeah, I agree with that. You know, different implants require a different um, slope. For example, like a rotating platform type implant, the uh, recommendation is to actually cut the slope at neutral. But, um, you know, for other type of implants, you kind of want to match, match the tibial slope. Um, so I think all those things you said are important. And then on the AP, I want to just take a little bit of time and if you could explain like the difference between the anatomical axis versus the mechanical axis and the part that plays in, um, in our, I guess, total pre-op planning for our total knees. And I assume we're probably talking about the uh, a mechanical, like restoring mechanical um, axis. I guess maybe we can actually touch on that because that's also confusing. Uh, if we're trying to restore mechanical axis versus doing it in anatomic knee? Yeah, so, you know, I think this is where it actually gets into the nitty gritty of the procedure and what you're going to do in the operating room. And I think the important thing to realize, especially if you're in training, is that you're going to work with 10, 20 different surgeons and they're all going to do something different. The most important thing is just realizing, one, to know all these different techniques because not everyone's right, not everyone's wrong. There's a, there's 10 different ways to do a total knee. Um, but understanding the basics and why that person is doing that procedure that way, I think is kind of at the core of this. And, and breaking down knee replacement into kind of its most basic components, figuring out what goals we're trying to achieve and then how we're going to achieve them best. So in, as far as talking about alignment, I think the simplest way to think about it is Mechanical axis is a line that's drawn from the center of your femoral head to the center of your ankle. That is the mechanical weight-bearing axis of the limb, and that is what you are trying to restore with a knee replacement. So Perfect. going into going in a, even a little bit more deeper to that, how do we how do we restore that mechanical axis? What are the different techniques to do that? So talk, when we talk about anatomic axis. What anatomic axis is, is a line drawn down the shaft of the femur or a line down, drawn down the shaft of the tibia. This is not the same as the mechanical axis. You do not bear weight in the same direction as a line down the center of your femur. So, yeah, so the anatomic axis is a line down the, uh, the center of the femur and the uh, mechanical axis is a line from the center of the head to the center of the knee. The difference between these two lines, the angle that they make, that's usually about five to seven degrees. So that angle is what we're trying to recreate when we make a distal femoral cut. So there's multiple ways to do this. You can stick a shaft down the, fe down the femur. You drill a hole, you stick a shaft down the femur. That shaft is reproducing the anatomic axis. And then our cutting guide, you can actually set the five, six, seven degrees, which that is basically trying to recreate the cut to the mechanical axis. 
Now there's other ways to do that because not everyone's center of the femoral head is in the same location. Someone may have it at five degrees, someone may have it at seven degrees. This is where things like GPS or navigation or robotics can come into play where it actually, you move the leg in a circle and it actually finds the center of the hip for you. And then it dials in what that mechanical axis is. On average, we're normally cutting the, the distal femur at about five degrees to kind of off the anatomic axis to kind of line up with the center of the femoral head. Um, so taking that even, even a little further, so the tibia is a little bit easier. The anatomic axis of the tibia is actually straight down the tibia. And that also matches the mechanical axis of the tibia. So they're the same, it's straight down the tibia to the center of the, ac uh, center of the ankle. So the goal in recreating the mechanical for the axis for the tibia is just cutting a perpendicular, uh, cutting perpendicular to the anatomic, which is also the mechanical axis of the tibia. So it's a 90 degrees um, angle. Now, this isn't always true in every case. If the tibia has a little bit of a bow of it, uh, bow in it, we still know that from the center of the knee to the center of the ankle is the, the um, mechanical axis. So that's why we use extra medullary alignment um, where our, our guide goes around the ankle and goes um, uh, up to the proximal surface of the tibia and we can uh, line it up uh, 90 degrees that way. Um, so there's a couple important things about the cuts. Um, you don't want to, for example, a study shows that if you put the tibia in more than three degrees of varus, it has a higher chance of failure and a poor patient outcome down the line. So you wanna be as close to zero as you can. Um, if you have to err on a side, uh, you can err on the side of varus. It also depends on the total alignment of the knee. But I think the basic concepts are cut the distal femur at about five degrees to the anatomic axis, cut the um, proximal tibia 90 degrees to the anatomic axis. And that should give you a basically, a basic uh, good setup for having a good outcome for a knee. I think, I think that was a great explanation. And uh, just to summarize, so we're trying to restore the mechanical axis of the knee, and so intraoperatively use an intramedullary guide, which typically goes right down the anatomical axis of the femur, and then using that, you adjust your jig and you make a cut uh, in about five degrees of valgus, which will help restore the mechanical axis. And that's for the femur side versus for the tibia side, the mechanical axis and the anatomical axis is in line uh, right down the shaft, so you make a cut at 90 degrees. Um, the question I had is, we always hear the, or see these numbers like 87 degrees and 81 degrees on the, uh, you know, the distal femur angle, or you know, what, where, where do all these numbers come from? How do they come up with that? Because those are always pump, pop up on pictures, and I remember I was confused. I was like, I thought we were making five or six degrees of valgus. So how, how like, where do those numbers come from? Can you explain that? Yeah, so if you look at that number, uh, so the, uh, for the distal femur, uh, where it measures the lateral distal femoral angle at 87 degrees, which is normal, the way that that number comes about, and a lot of this is, uh, this is more important when you're doing deformity co uh, correction in the pediatric literature. It's not so important for the uh, joint replacement literature, but basically the uh, lateral distal femoral angle is at 87 degrees because the joint line is actually three degrees off from the mechanical axis. So it's actually, in total, the distal femur is actually nine degrees of valgus. And the uh, 
the um, proximal tibia is actually in three degrees of varus. So if you cancel out the extra three degrees in the distal femur and cancel out the extra three degrees in the proximal tibia, if you just cut him, um, cut it at neutral, so you're just cutting to the mechanical axis, you actually cancel both those out. So that makes it a square rectangular gap for your cut. So it's just because the distal femur is in that extra three degrees in the, of valgus and the proximal tibia is in that extra three degrees of varus that these numbers come from. Perfect. Uh, Go ahead, Jay. No, that, that was good. I mean, I have so many questions. Even if, uh, I mean, anyone who's done a few of these cases and you, you're trying to understand like, huh, I wonder why they're trying to get six degrees on this particular jig. And, you know, that makes so much sense. You're just trying to restore the mechanical axis. And if you understand the difference between the anatomic and mechanical axis of the femur, boom, it makes a, a whole lot more sense there. So I'm glad that you, you broke that down. Uh, what what is the significance of the the posterior condylar axis as well? That's something else that we uh, see, you know, when you read about just um, um, the the surgical technique of um, total knee arthroplasty. It's something that comes up. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah. So um, the looking at the posterior cond condyles, they're actually internally rotated about three degrees. So when you're setting, so you've made your distal, the way I do, I prepare the whole femur first. So you've made your distal femoral cut, it's five degrees, it lines up with the mechanical axis, points straight to the femoral head, great. The next step is, for me, setting our femoral rotation. So you, you'll see it in every question, don't internally rotate the femur, that's caused patella maltracking, causes subluxation, risk for dislocation, but why do we internally rotate, or why do we externally rotate it to three degrees? Why do we choose that number? So the, the posterior condyles are actually internally rotated to three degrees. So to compensate for that, we're actually externally rotating the jig by three degrees, and basically the three degrees cancel out, and that gives us a flat cut, which Everything we're trying to do is we're trying to get rectangular spaces. So we're trying to get a rectangular extension space. We're trying to get a rectangular flexion space. And this is going to give us a balanced knee. And a balanced knee is going to give us the best outcome for the patient and uh, give them the most, most stable knee that we can. And so that's why um, we externally rotate the jig by three degrees. Now, the, the pitfalls that you have to kind of watch out for is if you have a hypoplastic lateral condyle, then the posterior condyle axis is actually more than three degrees internally rotated. It may be five degrees, it may be six degrees. So then we would add more external rotation into our jig. And that, that makes up for that extra degrees. And so there's a bunch of different techniques to accomplish this. You can take a small little wedge, you can put it into the lateral condyle. You can line up your external rotation with the epicondylar axis. You can look at white sides line to make sure you're perpendicular to that. Um, and some people will even make their tibia cut first and then make their, uh, their flexion cut off the perpendicular to the tibia so that you have a rectangular space. Um, so there's basically four ways to kind of set your rotation. For me, um, if it's a little hypoplastic, I, I just like to make sure it's uh, I may do five degrees of uh, external rotation, and I, I just double check it with the epicondylar axis and with the and white sides line to make sure that I'm not 
internally rotating my femoral component. Yeah, and actually, I think that's pretty high yield about the hypoplastic condyle. Uh, so, what if you don't appreciate that the that you have this, um, you know, that the condyle is hypoplastic, and you don't make the appropriate adjustments, and you treat this like a normal normal knee? What deformity will you most likely see after you make after you make your cuts? If you don't uh, take that into consideration. Well, I mean, once you do enough of these, you'll kind of see, and sometimes you can kind of notice, you'll be like, oh, my, my component doesn't look externally rotated enough, or that's not lining up with the epicondylar axis. But it's not so much um, deformity, you know, but you will be internally rotating your femoral component, which the ultimate kind of downside of that is your patella, your, your trochlea and your implant will be shifted more medially and your Q angle will be increased. And so your patella will be more likely to sublux out laterally. And so you don't want to do a whole total knee and then you find out you're flexing it up to 90 degrees and your patella is popping out laterally. That's, uh, that's like one of the worst complications you can have. You know, the other things, there's kind of slight subtly, subtleties to think about. So if you internally rotate your component, um, then you're actually closing down the medial space a little bit and making it a little bit tighter in flexion on that medial side. If you over externally rotate your component, you're actually closing down that lateral space in flexion a little bit. Um, and those are kind of the subtleties you get into when you're balancing a knee, but really the primary goal and the easiest, um, easiest check is, you know, set your guide at three degrees of external rotation, Realize if it's hypoplastic, you may need a little little more. And before you pin it and cut it, make sure that you line up with your epicondylar axis and you line up with white sides line. That was a, um, I think that was a great explanation. And so just just to quickly sum sum up some of like how we we just kind of talked about how we make some of our different cuts is uh, on our AP is we're trying to recreate again that mechanical axis. So we um, we make our cut in five or six degrees of valgus in order to recreate our mechanical axis using our anatomical axis as a guide. And then to help control rotation, um, you know, I know there's a lot of different techniques, but using our trans-epicondylar axis, our uh, posterior condyle axis is three degrees internally rotated. So to compensate for that, we put three degrees of external rotation on our jig, or it can be four or five degrees if their lateral condyle is hypoplastic. But pretty much we want that cut to be parallel to our trans-epicondylar axis. And we don't want to internally rotate, rotate them too much because then that'll lead to patellar maltracking because you have an increased Q angle and um, that, can, that can lead to uh, complications post-op. Um, and so I guess our, one of the next things we wanted to touch base on was can you kind of go over the different types of designs like the posterior stabilizing and uh, uh, retaining? You know, can we can we touch on those? Yeah, so there's a um, you know there's a couple different designs and they may sound a little confusing because there's so many different ones. Um, really, you just have to realize that a lot of these designs that don't have a box cut are very similar. It's a lot of marketing tactics by the companies to say theirs is better and they have the best. But, um, you know, the main kind of 
constraint. Constraint is what we're going to be looking at, and we're going to kind of classify these from low constraint to high constraint. So the least constraining implant is an implant that doesn't have a box, it doesn't have a cannon post. And so you may hear these referred to, I would say the least one, the least kind of uh, constraint would be a cruciating, uh, cruciate retaining implant. And the goal behind the design of this implant was um, you retain your PCL, you keep that in place, that's going to provide some stability and, you know, may, and then the patient should have a good result with that. There was at one point an even less uh, lower constraint than that, which would be a, uh, they had a bicruciate implant where you would retain the ACL and the PCL. That didn't work out very well. It had a lot of, a lot of failure rates. Uh, failure rates. Um, so that was kind of X'd off the market. Um, so next step, we talked about cruciate retaining. You retain the PCL. And then the next kind of level of constraint, you may have heard it referred to as either a cruciate stabilizing um, a PCL substituting implant or a, um, you may hear a high flex poly, a deep flex poly, a medial pivot poly, a dual pivot poly. Um, basically what all these mean uh, is it's conformity of the polyethylene. So those type of implants do not have a box cut and the polyethylene is just more conforming. Um, so uh, it can be more lift anteriorly and more lift posteriorly. And basically the goal of the design of, let's say, a cruciate stabilizing poly or that category of poly um, is to try and recreate uh, the protection that the PCL would impart to the knee. Um, so they've done fluoroscopic studies where they take these knees uh, through a range of motion and Normally, you get femoral rollback, where you go down to, into deep uh, flexion and the femur actually roll back, rolls back. So what they found in these um, uh, knee replacements is you get paradoxical motion. So the knee actually, when you flex it down, if you're looking at a lateral fluoroscopic view, the femur will actually start to shift anteriorly. And instead of it rolling back, you're actually getting the femur sliding forward. So these highly conforming polys, are, some are built with a 9-millimeter anterior lift. Um, to try and prevent that paradoxical motion, to try and impart more stability to the knee. There's been studies in, uh, in Journal of Arthroplasty looking at in these cruciate retaining and cruciate stabilizing uh, designs that is there a difference between you actually taking the PCL or leaving the PCL? And they found similar results. So there's, even though the implant was designed to maintain the PCL, whether you release it or you don't release it, um, you know, there was no difference in complication. Right. And that kind of goes into another sector of balancing the knee and balancing the PCL, uh, which we can get into in this talk a little later. Um, so then kind of the next level of stability after the cruciate stabilizing type knee would be a posterior stabilized implant. And so the posterior stabilized implant um, was kind of the uh, first generation knee to uh, recreate the PCL and it's been around forever. It's a great design. It works very well, very high success rate. And so there's a box cut and there's a post on the polyethylene and that post basically tries to recreate the PCL and prevent the femur from uh, sliding forward. So that cam engages the tibial post as you go down into flexion. And so the goal of that is to recreate 
it actually recreate rollback? It's hard to say that there is still this want for the need to go into this paradoxical motion. Um, but that's kind of the next level of constraint. And a uh, there is a misconception that if you have a post, it provides some various valgus stability. A regular posterior stabilized implant, the post does not provide any various valgus stability. It is literally just there to prevent that anterior translation of the femur. So then the next, um, the next kind of level of constraint would be a varus valgus uh, constraint. Um, so going from the posterior stabilized implant to a varus valgus uh, constraint, this is one level before that kind of uh, final level constraint, which would be a uh, hinged knee. So the varus valgus has a wider post. And usually in these types of designs, the wide post will fill up the box very, very tightly. And um, so there is still some varus valgus motion, usually about maybe um, anywhere from uh, three to 10 degrees, depending on the implant. Um, but it does create more stability in the varus valgus uh, plane. A lot of these implants, these posts have to be reinforced with a, uh, with a metal peg that goes in it, and that's to prevent this uh, post from breaking because there's so much so much strain on it. Um, so this can be great for a, a revision type case or a case that you're going into where maybe there's a 20, 25 degree deformity and you may need to balance the knee. Um, and it may be impossible to balance. You may still be lax on the medial lateral side. And I think the varus valgus constraint is a great option um, to kind of deal with that without having to go to a hinge. Um, you know, hinge is a great design, but the longevity of putting a hinge in is not always that good. Um, you know, I try to, the way I think about it, and you know, not everyone may agree with me, but, you know, putting a hinge in almost makes you a little bit of a second-class citizen because that's not you know, these come loose. There's so much um, stress at the uh, implant uh, bone interface uh, of the hinge design because it's locked. It's a linked construct. So those forces have nowhere to dissipate except between the bone and the implant interface. And so when you're talking about getting to a hinge, uh, it is a great bailout for some cases. If someone has like a uh, neuromuscular disease or, um, um, or some type of insensate limb or uh, a multi-ligament type uh, knee injury where, you know, nothing else is going to help them except the hinge design, you know, it's great for those cases, but, um, you know, I'm always hesitant to jump right to it unless it's needed because there, uh, there is a high failure rate with those. And so I, I did hear you mention about, you know, the patients who would probably um, be, have a better, you know, have a more successful outcome with the constrained designs, but who gets the, the like the posterior stabilized implants versus the cruciate retaining implants? And are there patients who you wouldn't do those for? Um, yeah. So, you know, if it's a, it's a, it depends on, you know, neuro exam is incredibly Im Im uh, important. If someone, you know, has a, uh, a Charcot knee, for example, and they have uh, no neuromuscular control or it's insensate, um, 
you know, that's someone who, and if they have, usually with that type of knee, it's usually in pretty bad shape. So the, uh, the ligaments, medial collateral ligaments and LCL ligaments may not be intact. So that's someone I'm, uh, I'm leaning towards uh, uh, doing a hinge design. In the past, you, um, you know, they talk about that you should do a posterior stabilized knee on a rheumatoid patient. Um, you know, I think that uh, that is true to some extent. I think people are really pushing the boundaries with their, these newer type knee designs with these highly conforming polys. Um, so, you know, a lot of the times for me, revision, uh, the varus valgus constraint or the hinge design, they're really, um, really for my revision type cases, unless it's a really bad primary and it's some type of Charcot joint or some other uh, previous like multi-leg injury, um, uh, uh, it's really reserved for the revision stuff for me. And the, the, was the thought process, I'm just curious, was the thought process behind the patients that had rheumatoid, um, for them, was it because that the rheumatoid would do so much damage to the, the soft tissues, like the ligaments, um, you know, like the collaterals, uh, as well as the cruciates that, they may need a higher level of, I guess, stability per se. Is that is that what the thought process was behind that? Yeah, that that is that is uh, exactly the thinking behind it. You know, the other thing, if they're a rheumatoid patient, you know, it's recommended. You, some people resurface the patella, some people don't. Some people are selective. You know, rheumatoid I think is a criteria to resurface the patella because it's a cartilage inflammation disease. Um, these rheumatoids don't have good soft tissues, so. Um, you want, you don't want to put in a non-posterior stabilized knee and then show up with a dislocated knee because they're rheumatoid and they have terrible soft tissue. So the extra level of constraint in the rheumatoid type patients is exactly for the reason you said, because they have poor soft tissues. Makes perfect sense. I'm glad that you went through that. I think the designs is, you know, is something that's uh, pretty basic in the land of orthoplasty, but it makes you know, it makes a whole lot more sense if someone can just kind of break down to you why you use this one and why you don't use that one. Um, and it's kind of like the first steps of kind of planning on what, what you're going to do. So I think that was good to have that. Um, and you mentioned it a couple of times about balancing. And, you know, I actually have a quick question before we move on to that, Jay. Um, before, I know a little bit earlier, you were talking about physical exam um, findings. And so, for a patient that comes in with a flexion contracture and say they may have a, a, a varus, uh, a deformity, is there, is there a, a number cut off where you'll say, okay, well, we're, we're not even going to do a posterior stabilizing. We may go to some type of constrained implant or I guess, how does that, like, how do you venture through that? You know? Yeah. So I think, uh, um, you know, I can just kind of run through some example cases. We had a guy with a, uh, you know, 20 degree uh, uh, varus um, deformity from a um, from a previous uh, tibial plateau fracture, and so, you know, in extension he fell into the defect. But when you flexed him down, he corrected all the way to neutral, um, and in extension he was correctable. So, you know, initially you may just look at the X-ray and be like, wow, that's a 15, 20 degree deformity. I need a, a VVC or varus valgus constraint for that, but. You know, part of the physical exam and realizing he's falling into this defect, he's correcting to neutral, you know, and we ended up putting a, um, 
you know, a cruciate stabilizing type implant and, and his knee was completely balanced, completely stable. Um, so I think part of that physical exam and being able to see if it corrects or doesn't correct, you know, if he had that same deformity and he was, let's say, you know, 10 years out and his knee did not correct an extension to neutral and inflection, he kind of maintained that same barrister deformity. You know, I'm going into that case saying this knee is not correctable. You know, it's going to be a difficult knee to balance. I need to have a BVC, a varicellus constraint implant um, on backup. Oh, okay. But that, that, that makes sense. You know, one kind of, in my mind, and I, you know, older surgeons trained on the posterior stabilized type knee made a, a box cut every time. I think, you know, with the newer generation of arthroplasty surgeons, I think we're on the, like the fifth, fifth generation now. Um, you'll see more and more of these, uh, of the PS type implants fading out in primary knees and kind of be, being saved more for, um, you know, revision type scenarios. There's, there's a huge advantage, um, you know, to not making a box cut. Um, I don't know if you guys have experienced, but, you know, one of the complications is if you make the box cut and the box cut's undersized and you go to put a trial implant on and you're smacking it in, you know, one of the risks is fracturing off the, the medial condyle. And, you know, that's all in part because extra bone was taken. Um, so there's a, there's partially a risk with fracture by taking a, a box, you know, you're taking more bone. So if you have to come back in there and do a revision at a later time, um, and you have a primary VVC component in, it's a lot harder to go back in and uh, put another VVC component than if you hadn't cut the box in the first place. So, so you're saving bone, you know, that the other thing that saves time in the operating room, it's one less step. We all know the longer procedures are, the higher the infection rate. Um, you want to get the, you want to get the procedure done, get the patient off the table. And, you know, if all the studies are coming back and saying that these are having the same results and not the, you know, not a higher complication rate, um, you know, I think there's a lot of benefits to using um, these more conforming type polys and avoiding the box cut altogether. Uh, yes, sir. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you answering um, that question so well. And I uh, just have just one more topic before we wrap up here. Um, I wanted to quickly see if we could move on to uh, just some of the gap balancing. I know that's a really high yield, um, high yield topic with total knees and, a, and, a, and then a heavily tested question as well as a, you know, something that actually comes to comes to play when you're actually doing the case and you and you have to worry about balancing. Uh, can you kind of talk a little bit about how we balance with our, our flexion and extension gaps? I, th I think Jay has a has a, a something something here. Yeah, so you know that's like we talked about at the beginning. Our goal is getting a knee that lines up with the mechanical axis and getting a rectangular flexion gap, a rectangular extension gap. And what I mean by that is that it's equal, that it's balanced in both the medial and the lateral compartment. And if you can come out of the surgery with a knee that lines up with the mechanical axis and it's symmetric on both the medial and lateral compartments, you know, I think you've, uh, you've hit a home run for a knee replacement and accomplished kind of the main goals for giving a, the patient a good outcome. So, you know, there's a lot of things we can do to balance the knee. And so if we're making these bony cuts, Let's say we make our distal femur cut at five degrees and we make our uh, tibial cut perpendicular to the axis of the tibia. You know, those are our bony cuts. That doesn't affect our 
our balance. Our balance is derived from soft tissue balancing. So everything you do during the operation has some effect on soft tissue balance. You approach the knee, you're getting ready, you make your arthrotomy, you're down. And before you do your medial release, you know, it's important to think about what kind of deformity does this patient have? If they have a mild varus deformity, if they're neutral, um, you know, if they have a valgus deformity and they're really lax on the uh, medial side, before you do that medial release, you have to think that every soft tissue that you release off the medial side is going to loosen up that medial side. Um, so even from our approach, we have to be thinking about uh, balance. You know, you go down, you make all your cuts, you know, taking out the, um, you know, making sure you get all the meniscus, meniscus making sure you don't release popliteus. If you uh, release popliteus, that'll loosen up the lateral side inflection. You know, that's a surgical technique thing that you have to be cognizant of um, as you work through the surgery and uh, try to balance the knee. And then, you know, as more and more of us are putting in cruciate stabilizing designs, what do you do with the PCL? So um, some people will leave the PCL. The problem with the PCL is it tightens down the lateral compartment. It also tightens the inflection. So if your flexion space is too tight or you're too tight on the lateral side, you know, that's another option. You could release the PCL. Some people leave it, some people selectively release it or what you would call balance the PCL, only release it if it's tight inflection, tight on the lateral side. Um, and uh, some people release it every time. Um, so it's really surgeon dependent, but you have to know that those are the three reasons why, or three options that we have and why they're done and which one are you gonna choose when you're out in practice. And ultimately, if you're in a training program, that's what you're, you're experiencing all this to decide, is that what I wanna do or is that not what I wanna do? Um, so those are the kind of uh, main things. So. You know, let's say, for example, we have a, a really big varus deformity and we want to loosen it up. We're really tight on the medial side and we want to loosen it up. Uh, what can we do? So you can do a bigger medial release. You can get down to the hamstrings. You can release the hamstrings. You can get to that. We can really externally rotate the tibia and very much release that kind of posterior lateral corner. Um, you, uh, sorry, posterior medial corner. You can take, um, take osteophytes as well. Um, the other technique, if you have a really big uh, um, varus deformity, there's something called a medial reduction osteotomy, where you actually osteotomize some of the bone off. You shift your component laterally. You downsize your tibial component. And just by doing that, you've taken, by downsizing the component and taking that bone, um, you've tightened up uh, sorry, you've loosened up the uh, MCL and the pressure on that MCL. So just by that nature of downsizing and lateralizing the tibial component and downsizing the tibia with the osteotomy, you loosen up that, um, that medial side. Um, the other thing, you know, make sure your tibials, these are like little specific things that, um, you know, you may not learn or you may not get told, but like, uh, for example, if your tibial tray is oversized, that's going to put tension on the MCL. That could potentially add more uh, more tightness on that medial side. Um, and so that's kind of uh, more looking at coronal uh, plane balancing and looking at a you know sagittal plane balancing. Some other uh, some other things are you know look at your tibial slope. If you cut more tibial slope, you're going to loosen up the uh, you're going to loosen up the implant in uh, flexion. If you take more 
distal femur, you're gonna um, you're gonna loosen up um, you'll loosen up the extension space. So, for example, if someone has a 10 or 15 degree flexion contracture, you know, a lot of the times I'll just say, hey, take two more millimeters off the distal femur. This will be uh, this will loosen up our extension space, which will um, allow us to uh, get to neutral. Um, which, you know, that's what, one of the goals too of these patients is they want to be able to get their, their legs straight. Um, so I think that's important, but these are all things kind of that stem from that physical exam, stem from that radiographic exam and ideas that you have to have in your head before you go into the surgery in order to get a good alignment, a good balanced knee. You know, a couple other things, um, you know, that you'll see on OIT questions is, Oh, the flexion space is tight. What can we do? Um, so if you have a size, um, if you have a, like a size uh, seven femur on, that, that number seven denotes the anterior to posterior diameter of the implant. So if you downsize the femoral implant, you're going to loosen up your flexion space. If it's, I would say the most common time that that is used, the upsizing or downsizing of the implant would be in a revision case. A lot of the times when you do revision cases, the underlying problem is that you're loose in flexion, so you may want to upsize your femoral component and add on, uh, add on some posterior augments. Um, but those are kind of like the basics, bread and butter basics of balancing the knee and kind of um, what you have to think about to give a good rectangular flexion and rectangular extension space. Yeah. Um, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, like even mentioning the, the change in the, the size of the prosthesis is just because the, the main difference is, is in the AP diameter. Is that correct? And, uh, you know, that, so that may, that's why it makes a difference in more so the, the uh, flexion gap, but not so much the extension gap. Is that, is that right? Yeah. So the distal aspect of the implant is always the same. It, uh, it varies from company to company, but so for example, the implant that I use, it adds, you put the implant on, doesn't matter what size it is. It's adding 10 millimeters to that distal femur. So as you go up in number from a size one to two, two to three, three to four, you're growing into your posterior, but you're not adding anything distally. And so that um, flexion space is slowly tightening and slowly closing down, but you're not adding any, you're not really affecting the extension space because it's still 10 millimeters of metal on the end of the femur. Yeah, I think that was a, like a pretty, pretty easy one to, to catch on the, the questions. And so, yeah, we actually have a slide up on YouTube for those who might just be listening on the, um, on the podcast, but, there's like these scenarios that you see come up with the, the questions all the time. And are, are you able to just kind of run through them uh, rather yeah. briefly if, if possible? Yeah. So if you're a uh, tight in extension, tight in flexion, you want to do something that affects both gaps. So, you know, what affects the easiest way to think about it is the femur. You can indiv individualize extension and flexion. The tibia, whatever you do on that side is going to affect both. So if both are loose or both are tight, how will we do that? So if you're tight in extension, tight in flexion, you know, take more tibia and that'll loosen you up in both. Um, so then the next kind of scenario, scenario is uh, if you're loose in extension and loose in flexion, you want to tighten up both of those so you can 
add more poly, which is the easiest way. Let's say you're in a revision scenario and the company only makes the poly that it goes up to 20. Uh, so what's the next option? So companies have augments for the bottom of the tibia where you can add five or 10 millimeters to the tibia or base plate and you can downsize your poly. So if you're loose in both, you wanna do something on the tibial side, the easiest is upside the poly for that or put augments under the tibial tray. Um, if you're tight in extension and normal flexion, so what can we do to loosen up the extension gap? So if you're tight in extension, what's happening is you're, you have that flexion contracture and you're not getting out all the way to zero. Um, so you want to take more distal femur. The distal femur is going to affect the extension gap. You take more distal femur, that'll loosen you up in extension. Um, if you're normal extension and you're tight in flexion, so this is kind of, I would say this is probably the most common scenario um, if, uh, that happens a lot. Um, so the easiest way to loosen up uh, your flexion space is you can cut more slope. Um, you can take the PCL. Uh, it depends what side you're tight on. You're usually not symmetrically tight. Usually it's one side or the other. So if it's on the medial side, you can do more of a medial release, take posterior medial. Um, capsule and corner. Um, if it's, uh, you could do that medial reduction osteotomy we talked about. If you're tight in normal extension and tight inflection on the uh, lateral side, you know, popliteus um, is a, uh, if that's tight, if the knee is tight in flexion on the lateral side, you release popliteus, that'll open that up a little bit. Um, you can make sure there's no osteophytes over there. You can do, um, you can do some release of that uh, of uh, posterior capsule, which may help uh, if you're tight on that lateral side. Uh, some more for the extension space, you can uh, pie, uh, pie crust the uh, IT band. But you know, I think the biggest things for being tight in flexions with tibial slope and the PCL um, recess those. If you're normal in extension, but you're uh, uh, you're loose in flexion, um, you know, I would. For this one, I would build up the flexion space. So, yeah. you know, put in a put in a poly, upsize your poly. So that'll tighten you up in both, which would make you tight in extension. And then you can take a little more distal femur. So I would even that out. I think that's that's the easiest way to deal with that one. Um, you don't want to be loose in flexion. So the biggest the best test to make sure you're not loose in uh, flexion, put the knee in a figure four position. If you have a post, make sure the cam's not jumping the post, make sure the knee's not dislocating. Um, you don't want to leave the OR um, being super, super loose in flexion. Um, if you're loose in extension, but you're normal in flexion, um, you know, the option for this would be a uh, couple things. So you can add on augments. You'll obviously have to use a revision type implant to do that, to build up your distal femur. Um, and then if you build up your distal femur, this will tighten you up in extension. The other trick which you can use is you can actually use cement augments. So if you don't mallet, if you get a good press fit, but you don't mallet the femur all the way down, you can actually do a kind of pseudo augment with one or two millimeters of uh, cement. So now, cement's a great equalizer. You can basically do whatever you want with it. So you can uh, let it sit just a little bit proud. Not too much. You don't want a massive cement handle, but if you do one or two millimeters, that's okay. Perfect. I, I think that was good. I, I mean, you see these questions all the time, and 
it's probably going to at least be one or two of them on each OITE exam. And if you know it, it's like a quick, you know, a quick point for you. And if you spend just a little bit of time uh, either listening to what Dr. Dr. Harb just mentioned or just studying it, it, it makes a lot of sense. So I really appreciate you um, going through that as well. Um, and before we close out, is there any, you know, I know there with knee arthroplasty, you probably could have a whole talk about complications. You could have a talk about infections. Uh, but this was kind of the main things that we wanted to touch on, on just the intro to total knee arthroplasty. So is there anything else that you think that we probably should mention, Dr. Hart? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, I think all this is, um, you know, bread and butter uh, for knee replacement, you know, trying there's great articles on um, JBJS and Yellow Journal that kind of talk about how to approach a knee replacement from start to finish with physical exam history. But just when you when something happens in the OR, and this is kind of just a general rule of thumb, and you don't know why that was done, either one, ask the question. If you don't want to ask the question, you know, there's probably a video online or probably somebody explaining it because someone probably had that exact same question. Um, you know, so I think it's important when you don't know things to go out there, seek the information. That way, you know, you can build upon that foundation because once you kind of learn all these bread and butter things about neoarthroplasty, you can kind of get into the more complicated stuff um which i i find really fun so awesome awesome i think that was great uh yeah. I, I enjoyed the talk and i learned a lot and probably gonna have to listen to this one over uh, a couple times just to grab everything but i think it was some really uh good basic uh knowledge to know about knee, knee arthroplasty so it was really helpful thank you dr hart yeah that was excellent absolutely Thank you, Jane Wendell. I, uh, I really appreciate it. This was, this was a lot of fun for me. I love doing the uh, online education stuff. So, you know, I love what you guys are doing. I think uh, keep doing it. This is, uh, this is a great way to uh, provide education.